follow an idea to its natural end. Be that in business, be that in love, just follow it to its natural end. Maybe the end is five minutes away, maybe it's 30 years away, maybe it doesn't end. But absolutely, if the decision is choosing yes or no, I go for yes. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, Brendan O'Shaughnessy, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Oh, Martin, pleasure's on mine. I think it's a great idea and wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, great. Well, look, the first question I always ask my guest is, how did you end up joining the service, or in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? Pretty simply. I grew up in the coastal town of Rockingham, so for naval personnel, they'll know that. And my summer pocket money was spent diving for crayfish on the back of Garden Island. And I was hosted by two, one was a senior sailor and one was an officer who just seemed to live incredible lives, much more than I'd ever seen as a young fellow on the coast of Australia. So that was my lead in. Yeah, very good. And you joined the Navy. Is it something you sort of, I mean, would you have expectations about what it was going to be like? I thought all I did was dive for crayfish, Martin. I was kind of shocked <laughs> when there was a whole lot more to it. Look, I didn't. I grew up loving boats, loving the water, and I drew that parallel. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of awareness of traditions of the service of what the Navy did beyond, say, let's just say a film, what's presented in the popular media. So, no, I was, if I look back in hindsight, it was a very good decision, but wasn't well-founded. Yeah, right. So you were young, but were there leadership heroes, influences growing up before you joined the service or maybe early in your career? I was young to go into the Defence Academy due to the schooling system. I was just 17. My strongest influences at that age were parents, friends of parents. I had a couple of great teachers and I was a good kid. I can say that now in hindsight, but I would have been on that watershed of the good kid that gets led poorly or the good kid that does good things. And a couple of teachers along the way just kept giving me those opportunities. Friends, parents, there was one particular parent who just said, what do you want to do? And I, standard responses, university, I think I was talking about engineering. There's a big world out there. Keep your eyes open. And that sentence was just enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough question, isn't it? That one that we often ask our young people is like, what are you going to do? And, and they often don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I, now I'm raising two daughters. My narrative is just keep your options open because I don't expect you to know. Yeah, yeah, very good. So what were your experience of leadership early in your career? I mean, was there a moment where, you know, you came across some good examples, maybe even some not so good? Oh, really good. I think given that I'm talking about a time late 80s through 90s, leading humans has always been a core value of all the services, but I don't think they were doing it as well as they could have back then. I got lucky. I threaded a very good needle with my leaders. 
I had even the senior classes at the Defence Academy, I just had some good humans in there that really, through their own behaviours, gave me a good example. I then did the patrol boat time. Again, relaxed, competent, funny. There was really good bits to take out of that. Mm. I'd say if, there, if you said, was there a defining moment? It's okay to mention some names, I hope, Martin, of hmm. service people. Yeah. I had a, a captain along the way that was quite the charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. He was very militarily correct, mm-hmm. but he, he allowed more of his personality through into his leadership. It isn't my style, but, oh, he turned a ship around and made us the best we could be, including myself. I was a little bit too easygoing. I was just there to fill in the days between rugby and going out. And he did not accept that. And that bit of leadership, course correction, if you will, yeah. stayed with me ever since. So now I got very lucky in, in my time for good leadership. Yeah. We do need to, when we see good potential in people, is actually show them that actually maybe there are some things that are limiting their ability to be successful or limiting their ability to be their full potential. No, absolutely. And that's what it was. I, I couldn't see it either. You need someone, and the naval or military hierarchy is quite good at pointing out your blind spots. Yeah. But with candor, I needed someone because I thought I was just cruising through. I must be good at this. I'm the guy that's just having fun and going to run through this. And he, no, that attribute is not acceptable here. Mm. And that, maybe it was the other way. Maybe I needed to relax more. Whatever that correction was, Getting that early, and I think the military do that well, Yes, is it was just fundamental. Yeah. So where did your career end up taking you? You joined as a seaman officer. Did you sort of follow that path of patrol boats and big ships, or what else did you do in that time, and where did you go perhaps? No, absolutely. I, I went through the, the standard seaman officer training scheme. It was exact in those days. The I went through... Patrol boats, the Adelaide class frigates. I enjoyed all. Circumnavigated Australia on a patrol boat, went through the Indonesian, Philippines, all of that on a patrol boat, which is really special. Mm. Those sort of 40 plus metre boats with a small team to have had that opportunity. It was great. Mm. Then I moved up to the frigate, which I felt as a comfortable size, 200 crew, which seems a lot on a small vessel to me now, relatively small vessel on the scheme of things. Yeah. And then we did an amazing deployment. Where are we now? 1994, 95. Up through Japan, real fly the flag stuff, really good seafaring. I enjoyed it immensely. I think I then fell under, again, very positive influence that said, you're doing okay. You should follow warfare as your career. Unfortunately, that wasn't who or isn't who I am. I would have been the term, I, I don't know if it's still in use, salt horse. Yeah. I enjoyed being at sea for seafaring's sake. Yes. I really enjoyed that. Mm. As we'll get to, I continue to be a mariner. That opportunity was there, but when someone says, gives you a bit of flattery and says, you'll be good at this, you follow it all the way. And if I look back objectively, that following that and not standing up for what I knew was what I wanted probably curtailed my career by a few years. Mm. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because for those listening, the career path in the at least the Royal Australian Navy for somebody who's a seaman officer is there's just the next job, next job, next job. All that's all aiming towards being the commanding officer of a, of a war a warship and going on to those things. And you've got to do certain things. But once you've had command of a big ship, that may be the one and only time you do it. Mm. If you love being at sea, you love leading people in that environment and and get the best out of people, then that pathway is not going to get you that outcome, which is obviously what you wanted to do. No, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because warfare and seafaring, they're not always the same thing. Mm. And I look to, and don't get me wrong, I think the Navy produce incredible leaders, incredible mariners, but I now just spend my whole life, at, half my life at sea on a rotation. Mm. It's not a three-year posting that I've coveted for my whole career. I take ships around the world constantly, and mm. I see those two parallels. If you were to rewrite the book of Navy, you could almost have just your mariners and then your warfare officers. It's a different thing. It's not really the topic of what we're doing today, but it often interests me looking back. Yeah. Back in your service career, we know it doesn't always go well. Was there a a big lesson from something you did where you went, wish I'd done that differently? I would say a very positive one. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to my true voice. Uh, I should have gone off on the diving stream right. and not the warfare stream. Okay. That was who I was as a child. That was who I thought I was coming into the Navy to be. Mm. And it wasn't, the door was never shut on me. It was more the other way. Mm. A big shinier one was opened. Yeah. But it, I wasn't true to myself. Mm. Did I have any negative experiences through that? No, mm. absolutely not at all points. And I'm not putting a sepia light on a career. I got told off. I lost a lot of weekend leave. <laughs> I only had people looking after my better interest. Well, that's great to hear. It is about, as you were saying, though, it is about sort of being true to yourself. And it sounds like from your transition, you've you've actually gone on and done something that's probably close to your heart. Absolutely. More good luck than good planning, to be fair. Yeah. I, like so many, I, as I mentioned, at 17 into the Navy, at 27 departing, my emotional maturity or my concept of how the wider world works was probably closer on the curve to 17 than 27. Okay. So I didn't have a lot of idea of what I was doing. I was looked after so well mm-hmm. in the Navy, like we all are. I, I hadn't had to look after anything. So I thought I was going to go to Darwin to study education, mm-hmm. Aboriginal education. I think there is a remains to this day an enormous gap in Australia. And I wanted to do my little bit. So I started doing that. And if you're tracking the years, it's about the time we had waterfront reform. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was a young lad that needed to make some pocket money to get through university studies, mm. had no union affiliation, mm-hmm. and took a job as a deckhand on a, on a tug right. in Darwin Harbour. Right. And orange overalls. And I do remember, I'm not sure if I've ever shared this, Martin, so let's go. Yeah. I was under the bow of a frigate. So a Navy one? And the... Australian Navy one. Yes. Australian, thank you. Australian Navy frigate. Mm -hmm. And the 
senior sailor in charge of the foredeck. If I get some of my terms wrong here, please forgive me. Yeah, foredeck, forecastle, yeah. Forecastle leans over the gunnel as they're passing a heaving line down for me to connect the tow line. And he looks down, and I knew him. He says, hello, sir. And he, he looks inboard, and he says, fellas, come and look. Sir's fallen off his perch. <laughs> it was interesting. I've never been happier as when I was on that tug. Yeah. I ended up becoming the Northern Australian manager for the, the fleet of that vessels. Yeah. But I did my time on the deck of that tug. Mm. And it stuck with me. I never wanted to prove him wrong. Mm. But I was very proud that I was also capable of working on the deck of a tug mm. and did not have to hide behind a rank. Yeah. It goes back to what you said before about being your real self. And, you know, this. we sometimes have this image about what a leader is or certain people in our organisation. But the reality is we actually, we are better when we are being our true selves. And and, you know, if you've got to go and do time of a tug to understand how that organisation works and work yourself up into that organisation to be an effective leader in that organisation, that just makes sense to me. It does. Interesting, I spoke of that charismatic leader before. Mm. That was so authentic to him. If I tried that, I'd be mocked, correctly so. Yeah. Isn't my authentic style. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something about keeping it real as a leader and recognising that, you know, you've got to get to know your people. You've got to get to know how the place works. You don't need necessarily to be an expert in everything, but understanding how the place works and what the challenges are. You get that from being on the deck plate, so to speak, and engaging people and being involved as part of the team. No, I, all of what you say. Yeah. Absolutely. Another one which I did share with you before we came on this call, I had another naval captain a big one. So, you know, second drive, first strike, naval captain. Mm. I was the assistant to the assistant to the assistant divisional officer. And I went to see him. It was on a, a DDG. What's a DDG? 300 people? Yeah, 330 it was. It was a lot back then. Mm -hmm. And I had my folders of the sailors I was about to speak on about something. It would have been minor. And he said, okay, my time is tight. Tell me about them. And I used a nickname for the first person. I'd prefer if he used their real names with me. Yes, sorry, sir. I glanced down. I had forgotten his name, this sailor. Mm. I had not even used his nickname. It was one of those very ubiquitous nicknames. Mm. And it was checked by this captain, who then, without breaking eye contact, told me about all the sailors I folders I was holding, mm -hmm. their ranks, their wishes, their families, their insecurities, you will never lead people until you know who they are. Yes. And again, I was a cocky, what was I, 21-year-old sub-lieutenant, mm -hmm. and I walked out of there maybe six inches shorter, but it stuck with me since then. Yeah. You cannot lead unless you know your people. Yeah. I had a very similar experience as a junior officer, and my, the advice given to me was that the crew are not homogenous. By that, by what I mean by that is that they are not all the same, and so you've got to be very careful not to assume that your your sort of plans, what's going to be the motivators for one person, is going to be the same for another. And yeah, it goes back to getting to know your people for sure. What was your transition from service to to a corporate career like? I mean. 
it was seemed like it was something you absolutely wanted to do and you found yourself in that role. But after that sort of time in sort of Darwin, you started to pursue some other interests and which has led to what you do now, which I'm fascinated to talk about, and we'll get to that for sure. Okay. In fact, I hope that we can find somewhere in the world where you're going to be and we can just catch up on the boat. <laughs> we'll finish the podcast on the yacht. Now, from there, yeah. Darwin was P&O Maritime, which is, do you know what? It was a nice step from Navy. Hmm. There was familiar structure. Hmm. The titles of the regulations were not ABR, but they were familiar. Everything was very structured. Hmm. So that made that step through quite simple. There were some senior retired naval personnel in that organization so you had a shared language and some of our clients were royal australian navy and other navy so that was a nice step after that for a couple of years i went to queensland to brisbane to join a much more less corporatized more freewheeling shipping logistics type organization i struggled because I had a, a fantastic boss, but he put no boundaries in. Mm. Turn a profit. Show up when you show up. Mm. Leave when you leave. Service your client. Tell me if you're stuck. Which is, by the way, really good leadership. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't ready for that. Yes. I would show up 10 minutes to 8, sit down, get going, Midday on one, I would change, go for my run, make sure I was back at the desk. No one else did. And there was only one other, what was I at this stage? Late 20s, closing in on 30. One other fellow of similar age. And after a few months, he said, do you want to go for a coffee? And we met. And he said, we don't quite know how to take you. (laughs) I said, what? He goes, well, you know when you go for a run, we go for beers. Right. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, I, I didn't know that. And he said, you know there's a couple of guys away of an afternoon? I said, yeah. He goes, they're usually sleeping it off. Right. And I said, oh. I'm thinking, am I meant to behave? Is that meant to? I had to leave. It was too much for me. Mm-hmm. Too much for I, much as I, at the time, would say I rallied against some of the structure of the military, when you take that away completely, I was kind of a, bit, a little bit lost. Mm. I wanted something in the middle. So that was a really good experience. I wouldn't have said that in those years. Mm. I would have made another story. But now, again, there was too much freedom for me, which is interesting because then through a childhood associate, a great friend who used to work with me at the local dive store rang up and said, can you be in Monaco in three days to join a yacht? And it just sounded fantastic. So it's part of, if you said in Brisbane, I was scared of freewheeling, I was about to go into an industry that was completely unregulated back then. Yeah. What an amazing call to get. I heard a couple of things in all that. And one of them is that you've got to do something that's probably got, number one, it's got to be aligned with your values and be in an environment that, that, but sometimes as the leader, you've got to probably set those values and set some boundaries. But it's also about like when somebody gives you an opportunity, like, don't ask how, just get there, you know, and go and take the, whatever you can get from it. I, I absolutely believe in that. Mm. Follow an idea to its natural end. Yeah, nice. Be that in business, be that in love, just follow it to its natural end. 
Mm. Maybe the end is five minutes away. Maybe it's 30 years away. Maybe it doesn't end. Yeah. But absolutely, if the decision is choice yes or no, mm. I go for yes. Yeah. So that decision to go to Monaco started then a career in in super yachts. Is that right? Yeah. So super yachts, everyone has a different name for it. Even in Australia, here it called as white boats, which is never used outside of Australia, which I find very comical. Yeah. So I joined a seventy meter yacht in Monaco, mm-hmm. and a motor yacht. So I've been racing my whole career to that point. And when people say yachts, they said, "Oh, did you?" Sail, uh, sadly, motor yacht. Mm. This one, just to put in perspective, because you'll know some of these measurements, that it had an LM1600 gas turbine in the middle. Wow. Two 5,000 horsepower Deutz engines on either side. So it's 70 metre, 1,100 gross tonne, capable of 30 plus knots. It wasn't there when I joined, but in prior years, because going at that speed, it wasn't transatlantic capable. It was transatlantic capable at slower speeds, but not at full speed. Right. So it used to have its own tanker that used to wait mid-Atlantic, and it used to drogue refuel. Wow. So that was my introduction to yachting. Wow. And coming into Monaco, and Monaco has since doubled in size. The port has been rebuilt since then. So I, I'm circa 2001. There was all these yachts sitting there. The biggest one that, to me, blocked out the horizon was Lady Mora at 105 metres and 6,000 gross tonnes. Mm. That is still significant, but it's been... Surpassed. Completely taken over, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what did you take from your time in the Navy and the lessons learned in terms of becoming a, ca- a captain in a, in a different maritime environment to the one perhaps you grew up with? What have you taken that's worked and what else have you learned, I guess, along the way? Mm. I will break it across two. We're talking about leadership. Operationally, I found naval, uh, your bridgemanship was very good, mm-hmm. really good. And I've tried to push that away in my I'm not in the Navy anymore phase. Mm. And then you come back to it and say, well, maybe I'm going to take these bits because they're really good. My ability to deliver a harbour brief, and I still do, entering departure briefs. Of course you do. Mm. You'd be mad not to. Mm. I still take everyone through everything I'm doing to share it. That all came from Navy. So that was that was great stuff. That's the ability to communicate. Mm. That came from Navy. Yeah. And um, gave me a great head start. Another one that I took, oh, this is so boring, staff work. <laughs> I did not think you were going to talk about staff work. The ability to write and communicate mm. to people and structure a memo. Mm. It sounds so banal, mm. but all those, well, not even when you're sending signals, but when you're writing something for Captain Signature and you went with trepidation with a shaking piece of paper, mm. it made you sharp, mm. writing in the active voice, being concise. So that is so boring, but so helpful. Mm. So I took that for sure. The other side was the know your people, definitely. I care for people. Crew welfare is big to me. I'm now leading culturally diverse teams. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned not everyone is the same, the power distance culture, which I came, that wasn't taught in naval training in my time. Mm-hmm. Definitely it was in my commercial training. Mm-hmm. People are different. They sit culturally on different parts of the power distance curve. Mm-hmm. I've recently worked with a Bulgarian head chef and a Swedish chief stewardess. Mm-hmm. I could work with both. 
the Bulgarian head chef, yes, captain. He was fantastic. And I say, Mitko, we're friends. Mm. Just Brendan is fine. Yes, captain. Mm. Okay, we got that. I'm the senior person. Yeah. The Swedish chief stewardess gave no respect to anyone at any time if she chose not to. Right. Just completely flat. Yeah. Those two had to find each other somewhere in the middle. Mm. And I was able to bring that together. Yeah. Never, but they were able to work together. So that is something that the Navy didn't give me, but I, I was tuned in to look for it, mm. to know my people and to bring them together. So other ones, seamanship, I still, some of it just snaps out every so often, some weird little bits of seamanship come out on the bridge. And someone say, how'd you know that? And I say, I don't know. But I like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be like, yeah, that was taught to me a long time ago, and I don't think I was really even listening, but mm. it seems to have come back. Yeah. I like that. One thing I didn't know was running a vessel, commercial, private, given the tonnage of the vessels I run, yes, they're painted shiny, but it's, it's a large commercial undertaking. Yeah. I needed to learn the business of maritime. Mm. And I've done postgraduate studies in that direction to fill the gap. I found I was way out in front with some core operational knowledge, mm-hmm. but I lacked a lot in how you deal with the officer shore, mm. the fact that you have to do a much broader range of work. Mm. You are not the specialist. Yeah. There is not another one of you. Mm. You are there moving across, checking the prices of the guest supplies, whilst ordering fuel, whilst checking the nav plan, you're moving across the whole lot, whilst planning your five-year refit because there's no shore support. Mm. There's not a big office that sits behind you. Yeah, yeah. It's curious, isn't it, sometimes about what we need to step into in whatever environment it is in, in leading people but also leading to get the outcomes and bringing people with you. I am often think that sort of part of building a team is actually helping people move from feeling like they're conscripts to actually being a team of volunteers. And you've got to make it their goal, don't you, as a team to, to get that stuff done. I like that. That does come back to military, the conscript to volunteer. Absolutely. Mm. If they feel that they're just, if they have no agency in the game. Mm. Just recently read a, a really good captain's set of, it's called the crew handbook, for want of a better word. Hmm. And all the way through, it was, if in doubt, ask the captain. If in doubt, ask the captain. The captain is always right. Hmm. And 30 years ago, that's what we wrote. But I'm going, I'm just sort of coaching him, saying the crew have no agency in this. Hmm. You're basically telling them, follow my rules, one, two, three, four, five. If anything is that you want to express anything, then you have to see me anyway. And it's exactly what you said. He was leading a really good team, but they were conscripts. Yeah. And it's, um, it's also that situation where you end up, where you, where you place yourself as that expert in everything, it means that the people won't make a decision, that they won't bring any discretionary effort, and you're the one that's working hardest. <laughs> Absolutely. If that's the hardest, that's the best one. You've placed yourself at the centre of a decision, mm. and then you worry why your decisions are going badly because you're so fatigued. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you approached that? I mean, you talked about a diverse team. Have you got sort of any sort of stuff that you used to kick off with the new crew or? No, absolutely. So I'll frame this because I know the audience might say, well, what does he, 
my teams in recent years run between 40 and 60 on board mm -hmm. and maybe one and a half times that on payroll. So all of your senior mariner team are on rotation. Mm -hmm. So two months on, two months off. Mm. So that's who you're standing in front of, metaphorically and physically. Mm. You come in, maybe you are, I've built two of these yachts, so you're the build captain. You get in at ground zero and you get to put a bit of a, a cultural start in. Or you come in late and you inherit a culture. So that's, and yet we are always multinational multilingual mm. and the owner may be represented by management might be directly involved or may have an office mm -hmm. so a family office may run this and you're reporting to the legal and finance team on behalf of the owner mm. might have a major domo so remembering beyond the yacht the owner will have residential investment aviation interests there is a lot going on they're like a nation state so that frames where we are. When I come in, I do a lot of listening mm -hmm. and I try to get three questions deep. That's my little internal monologue, get three questions deep. Ah, okay, cool. So where are you from? One question deep. Mm. Do you, if I've got a connection to that, and after a while you kind of have a connection to everywhere, you can then say, is that near Philippine crew? I rode my bicycle around Davao. It was a while ago now. It's a long while ago now. <laughs> Are you near the coast? There's that tourist island. Two questions deep. Mm. And then you can move across to family. And if you're getting three questions deep with people mm. and they're doing all the talking, yes. you, before you have even had to make decisions that might even curtail their freedom, you've got an intimacy. That's my way. I have an intimacy. And years ago... A captain said to me when I was a first mate on a 60-meter yacht, really good advice. He said, on this vessel, for safety, you should see every compartment every day. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, okay, that's good. Mm. gets a bit hard when the vessels get bigger and bigger. But mm. I said, okay, okay, that's good, good advice. And I'd get around the boat and open and look. I actually have adapted that. I need to see every crew member every day. Oh, right. I don't get around the spaces as much as I should, but I do look in the eyes of a crew member every day. Mm. There isn't a morning parade mm. where you can see those little tiny trends of someone mm. who's a little bit unshaven today, a little bit scuffed boots tomorrow. That You're not caring about the shaving or the boots. You're caring about the trend of the human. Yes. I now do that in my own way, getting around all the way. I have a crew meeting and I put a lot of effort into crew meetings. Mm. I rehearse them, which is always embarrassing, in bathroom door shut, looking in the mirror, and I practice what I'm going to say. I use the tools of rhetoric mm. and I get the message out there. Then half an hour later, I'll go down to the laundry, which is usually the furthest away, and say, mm. so what did I say and did any of it make sense? Yes. Oh, no, Captain, it was really nice to listen to you. You are funny, but I don't know what you meant. Yes. Great. Okay. Let's go through that again. Mm. So I'm very conscious, and this might sound not sycophantic to a maritime code, but the ISM code, roles of the master, so easy. Mm. It's only got five. It's the easiest code in the world. You are uphold the policies, motivate crew to follow them, communicate clearly. Mm. The other two bits are about 
record and improve. But for those three, how simple is that? Yes. That's all you have to do. They are clever, the people that I'm overriding that. Mm. I think that is my most important thing. Mm. Understand what's important in the team, mm. be that maritime, be that any sphere. Mm. What are the values of this organization? Mm. Motivate your team to follow the values and communicate clearly. Mm. So simple. There's a lot of rhetoric, I guess, around in that space of leadership about something new and shiny, but at the end of the day, it does just come down to some simple truths, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. Mm. And I am incredibly envious of my peers, yourself, who stayed on through a, a very successful career, that have taken their military career a long way. And the leadership, the ongoing developmental training that leaders gain mm. in the military, no one else invests. And I'm always envious of that. But mm. it does always come down to basics. How can you interact with another human in a manner that makes sense to them? Yeah. It sounds like you're investing, though, in the people that are effectively your successors in the in the industry. And you've actually written a book about being a super yacht captain, which I am so looking forward to reading. But what are some of those big stories in there, one that you'd love to share? Do you know what? I haven't practiced it. One of them that I – it takes a little while, but I'll get there – Decision-making in fast and slow emergencies. Mm-hmm. As mariners, we practice fast emergencies all the time. And this is absolutely identical to any naval practice. Immediate actions checklist. Mm. It, it's great. And if you can do both, you've got to have mm. unconscious competence. You've got to be able to react fast. Mm. And that takes a, certain, a lot of training, a lot of practice, visualization, and in the book, I speak of a steering gear failure, 10,000 gross vessel, 100 personnel, so double the size of my frigate that I thought was so huge back in the day mm. by gross tonnage. Mm. Narrow channel, steering locks over, bizarre cause of this, which I won't go into. We miss being T-boned by an inbound belt carrier by approximately 40 metres. I, I can say it, my performance on that day well, it passed the test. We did not collide mm-hmm. because I had unconscious competence. Mm-hmm. So well done me. That's a fast emergency. A slow emergency. And if you'd say you've got two boxes, which one do you want? Well, you choose the slow emergency, obviously. The slow emergency is where a crew culture unraveled. Mm-hmm. There's no start date. There's no alarm. So how do you watch it? How do you know when that starts? It's just unraveling. You're ignoring it. In hindsight, you'll join it together. But at real time, you just ignore it. Then it erupts into a large event, which ends up with dismissals, life-changing decisions made against young people, all of that. And it takes a very different set of decision-making strategies Mm. than your fast emergency. Fast emergencies are great. Mm. Practice all your competences, learn your systems, react. Mm. That behavior hinders you in a slow emergency. Because I know at times as a captain, as a leader, I am listening to solve. I want to get as much information of you as possible and I'll solve your problem for you. Mm. That's what we do. Fast, immediate actions. Give me four data points. Oh, there you go. That's what you should do. The person walks out. You're chuffed. You've solved a problem. They work out going, I hadn't even really got to what I wanted to talk to them about. Mm. 
So the strategies, and this is in the book, listening to learn, I, I have to relive both of those events. Both of them were very tough mm. to write this. And listening to learn was where I look back and say, I got too busy. Mm. I started to focus on the urgent, not the important. Mm -hmm. I just said about one of my metrics that I will see every crew member every day. It started to slip because I got busy. Yeah. And I, my core things that I knew worked, I let go. And if you said, what was the more disruptive? The slow emergency. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. That comes, and of sure, there are some really good, we've got to have some lightness in there. Yes, I don't mention the names. I'm bound by quite a few NDAs, mm. which would make the Official Secrets Act look fairly relaxed, to be fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I do break down. I go in and I say, look, I love Bond films, but I get really annoyed with how underserved the bad guy is. Mm. Not enough staff. The boats are really small. Come on. So I break down the fantasy staff game, what it is to have 269 personal staff. Mm -hmm. It's a real example. It's about mid-range. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot more, but what it is to have everything done for you. I won't be a spoiler on the end of that chapter. <laughs> but I also try and put a little bit of context in there because if people see an influencer or an A-list actor and think that's the wealth of the world, not even close. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it, and I am sure that those that are listening will love it as well. And I think it's great that you've sort of uh, got away from sort of what might be popular on reality TV to actually the real hard stuff and uh, and the reality of it. And I just can't help but think that people are better off for that experience of, some real leadership in what you've been doing. What advice would you give a leader today if somebody was starting out or, you know, have you got like a couple of top tips? Maybe they're from the book. Maybe they're just off the you know, top of your head. No, top tips. We're going to go back to just make time for the people. Mm. Small one. If you have a desk, walk around it. If you have screens in front of you, turn them off, walk away from them. I find Australian actor... Eric Banner, 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 Banner very yeah. good, Banner, very good Australian actor. He was, did the Tasmanian Targa, mm -hmm. and he mentioned they were driving along and it was being filmed. And he said his best friend and he really like this because they catch up side by side. Mm -hmm. They don't want to sit across a coffee table and look at each other all the time. It's awkward. So if you need to speak to your people, find a setting that works. Two middle-aged men don't like sitting across a latte staring at each other longingly. <laughs> they like to go for a walk. Sure. Go for a walk. Yeah. So starting out, it's just got to be your people. The other one which I think so many get wrong is tight objectives, loose guidelines. Mm -hmm. We give a lot of guidelines and we skip the objective. Guidelines are kind of easy left right left right keep going tight objective loose guidelines let the people breathe out into their space mm -hmm. give a little tap course correction if you need it mm -hmm. but if they have an objective mm -hmm. your volunteers will come back yes that's a huge one for me and the other one is actually a quote from a sculptor elizabeth king who says process 
saves us from the poverty of our intentions. Oh, wow. Leadership is a process. Mm. If you're not in a good place yourself, you can't lead. Mm. Yes, there's the Churchillian leader, cigar and hungover. That's not who you're going to be. You're going to look like a clown. No. So I find my personal process very important. Mm. And I don't mean I set an example for my team by, no, no. I mean I come into it emotionally strong. Yes. And whether that is just I start the day every day with the same routine of a large water giving too much away, a bit of an overshare, sort of a ginger and turmeric tea. It's the process that matters. Mm. And if you look at sportsmen, mm. Nadal is almost my favourite. His process for serving mm. is mocked. The Australian Open, two sets down in a Grand Slam final. Oh. What got him through? Yeah. His process. Yeah. So for me, yeah. leadership is a process. Like I said, if I have to communicate to people, mm. my process is... I'll do the same process every time, uh -huh. whether it's a high five, look how well we've done, or quite a sermon like we need to pick it up. Mm. I will build my process. I will practice. Mm. And I think that gets overlooked. Everyone thinks that there's a, a silver bullet to leadership that I'll read this book. Find a process mm. that works for you. Live the process. Yeah. I think one of the other things that can always help is mentors and resources. Have you got mentors and resources that have helped you on this sort of journey of leadership in Sipiots? Oh, absolutely. Fortunately, we have, as I mentioned, we have the back-to-back -back roster. Uh -huh. My co-captains through my career, there's an intimacy there. Funnily enough, you spend very little time together because you have a handover day, then, but yeah, you share each other's success and failure. They have become both my mentors, my friends, and just my sounding boards. Mm. So I think, yes, thank you for saying that one. That is so important to be able to get out of your space. I have a very close friend who joined the Defence Academy with me, and we headline our conversations with good, bad, and ugly mm -hmm. when we need some counsel. Yeah. And we, because the other one is so invested, I'll be emotionally invested in, in a crew. I'll be emotionally invested in the performance of the vessel mm. or servicing my guests, which are sort of the titans of the world community. So all of my bias comes through. He's sitting in northern beaches, Sydney, with none of that, and he cuts through all of my accumulated cognitive bias and gives it straight back at me, good, bad, and ugly. Yeah, so it's good to have somebody that can make you consciously biased. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Pull it, pull that stuff out, and having it. I always I characterise it a bit like having a a canary in the coal mine person that can be your 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 mirror, your sounding board for that kind of stuff. Absolutely, the, I had a great one, and you've mentioned it. I really liked it, so I'm going to repeat it again. The conscript: If you show your vulnerability as a leader, then you you're bringing people in with you. Hmm. So I had a chief officer, commercially trained, ex-cruise ship, very competent, mature beyond his years, really good colleague. Fatigue, look, it's in business as well, hmm. but fatigue at sea really just cripples your leadership. It breaks your process. Hmm. You are all over the place. And you all see it in others and you forget it in yourself. And 
he'd come onto the bridge, and I don't want this to sound sexist, but he was moaning and everything was negative. And I said, oh, my word, Mildred, what's going on? Mm. He said, what? I said, oh, so I've been married for 40 years, Mildred. I was thinking of the television show, George and Mildred. Yes, right. <laughs> now, now, we're, now you're showing your age, but anyway, go yeah. on. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was kind of funny with myself, you know, well done me. A couple of days later, the crew mess had a, just a whiteboard next to the bain-marie where the meals were presented. And if there was someone, a good steward in the crew mess, they'd usually put a, something funny up there. It was quite artistically drawn. A nice, I don't wear a captain's hat, but a nice captain's hat. And underneath it, it had Mildred Alert. Right. So that was a very junior crew member saying, watch out for the captain. He's tired, behaving mm. like a dick. Yeah. That became a code word, mm. which is wonderful. So if you can have a code word mm. to represent behavior that gets you out of, because mm. you've got a big blind spot. So someone can say, I think you're driving in your blind spot. Mm-hmm. Your leadership will always have a blind spot, depending on where you've come from. Yes. And if there's to empower someone more junior to call you out on it. Mm. We had Mildred. Yeah. And Mildred became part of our vernacular. Mm-hmm. So much easier to say, oh, hi, Captain. I think you're behaving really poorly today because you're tired. Mm. Just easy to say, oh, Mildred here today? Mm. So it really helps, I think, I think, to have that code word in place. Yeah. And you don't get that unless you've created the environment where it's safe to do that. Psychological safety. Yeah. You have to create. There's All that we've just said does not work in an environment where people don't feel psychologically safe. Yeah. Brendan, it's been fascinating. I think we could talk for a lot longer on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I'm going to wrap it up now. We'll put some notes in the show notes about your book and all of the other things you've been doing. Thank you, Martin. We're going to finish off with some rapid-fire questions. As I say to my guests, Oof. they're rapid-fire questions. They don't necessarily have to be rapid-fire answers, but we'll see how we go. Okay. So the first question is leadership is blank. Humility. Ah, I'm going to, to fail. Getting others to do what they don't want to do, but they want to do it, which has been used by many, but that's the real thing, and doing it from a point of humility. Cool. Second question, what's your go-to book on leadership? I just recently read The Trillion Dollar Coach, okay. written by a, what I loved about it was there's no secrets in it. <laughs> I'm getting all the way through it going, this is just a story of a really good guy. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Third question, fill in the blank. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. To learn the language of decision making, mm. to be able to say out loud, to those around you, I'm coming into this decision with these biases on show, so call me on them. Mm. Learn the language of decision-making. Yeah, love that. Fourth question, you get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your boat, super yacht. What are your first words going to be to that person? How are you? Cool. That's it. Yeah. That's it. How are you? Yeah. And then trying to get through that question to another few questions deep. Mm. It almost slows people down, doesn't it, when you ask that? Because mm. mm. you're actually focusing on them rather than the crisis. How are you? Is there anything I can do for you right now? Mm. Or even harder, 
what do you want me to do for you right now? Mm. Mm. Very good. The last question. Do you have a go-to quote on leadership that's been most influential on your leadership? And it could be from somebody famous that we've seen on posters or a book, but or somebody just knew as a great mentor. I've already used it. It was <laughs> so David Hackworth was the one who said it out loud. He was the kind of quirky ex-Vietnam fellow that trotted out mm. as a speaker for a while. Mm-hmm. It was tight objectives, loose guidelines. Mm. We crawl back into our space of giving tight guidelines sometimes because it's easy but tight objectives, loose guidelines. Well, Brendan, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I can't wait for a further conversation somewhere in the world, either sitting on a super yacht or maybe in Western Australia when you get out here or when I get to Europe sometime when we're able to travel. Look, I'd love it. And, Martin, I think what you're doing is fantastic. I wish there had been this community around when I left the service. So I think a lot of people benefit. So thank you for letting me join in. Yeah, great. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.